Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have a wholesome and nourishing conversation with the immensely wise and caring Dr. Natasha Campbell-McBride. Look, priority number one when it comes to human health and well-being is making sure you are eating a nutrient-dense, human-appropriate diet. Somehow, though, leaders of the public all across the world have not only abandoned this idea, but caused mass confusion to the point that we no longer know what is our species-appropriate diet. It's insane. All whilst getting fatter, sicker, and more malnourished. Without trying to be hyperbolic, our dietary framework, as defined by governments in partnership with conglomerate food companies, is an utter disaster and is flushing human health down the toilet. In 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought into sharp focus that our poor health is causing people to unnecessarily die before their time. As 94% of Brits and similar numbers globally who have sadly passed with COVID-19 had one or more comorbidities. That is diabetes, obesity, hypertension, heart disease, and Alzheimer's to name but a few, which are laying the ground for infectious pathogens to spin our immune system out of control. So as part of an ongoing effort here at Adaptation to correct the many deliberate misunderstandings of this pandemic and bring agency back to you, the people, it is critical to uplevel the public's understanding on how to improve their host health, which really means being healthy with a healthy gut, healthy metabolism, and ultimately robustly healthy immune system. And that is exactly what you can expect throughout this info-packed episode with the amazing Dr. Natasha, whom you'll hear more about in just a moment you'll learn what a true human appropriate diet is in this episode. You'll hear the lies you've been told about diets, the fallacy of plant-based diets, and the necessity to care for your gut health and the practicality of what it means to have a nutrient-dense way of eating. Dr. Natasha covers so, so much whilst making it accessible to everyone. Make this your one nutritional guidance podcast to follow this year and help your loved ones get up to speed on what it takes to nourish their immune system too this flu season. As always, you can check out our full show notes, of which there are lots in this episode, by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help us and others by finding this show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging or sharing this Adaptation episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out our Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, which is an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast lists and the discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, I hope you enjoy this nourishing, instructional, and hopeful discussion with the incredible Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride. Wow, 
We have such an amazing guest and beautiful soul joining us on the Adaptation Mics today. This lady is a medical doctor with two postgraduate degrees, a Master of Medical Sciences in Neurology and a Master of Medical Sciences in Human Nutrition. She practiced as a neurologist and a neurosurgeon. Yes, we have a brain surgeon on the show. However, she now practices as a UK nutritionist and not a medical doctor, which is intriguing in its own right. She's well known for having developed the GAPS concept, which is gut and psychology syndrome, and the accompanying dietary protocol. She's a best-selling author of multiple books, including GAPS, Put Your Heart in Your Mouth, and Vegetarianism Explained. She's a keynote speaker, a regular contributor to health-related content online, magazines, and books, and she's a director on the advisory board of Western A. Price Foundation, the foundation founded and run by Sally Fallon-Morell, who was on our show a while back. Yes, we have the wonderful, wholesome, honest, and incredibly talented Dr. Natasha Campbell-McBride. Welcome on the show, Natasha. Thank you for for inviting me. I'm I'm, delighted to be here. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Um, Look, people need to hear your voice right now, Natasha, if I'm honest. I, I heard you just a while back, and you were captivating. You know, the reality is for me is like, it's a challenging time right now, and we desperately need more nourishment of our bodies, of our mind, and of our soul. And being more specific, we're entering into the, an upcoming flu season, as well as pandemic propaganda 2.0. And quite frankly, people need to hear what actually helps them right now versus all the political and media distraction that is only hurting us, our kids, our economy, and our society. So if you're up for it, I'd like us to explore the winter immune nourishing way of eating that I know you can speak so elegantly about. And um, yeah, let's get into it. Is that something that you're you're okay to speak about? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very happy to speak about, to speak about it. Well, human body has been beautifully designed. It is a perfect, perfect machine. Mother Nature took billions of years to design our bodies. It's your own body that heals itself, deals with any damage, and maintains its perfect health and vitality. As long as you give the body all the tools necessary, and as long as you don't abuse it, as long as you love it and treat it with respect. And that's what people have to do. That's all we have to do. There is no um, particular danger at the moment. <clears throat> I know I know the politics uh, of the place and the politics of the whole world will disagree with me. <laughs> but that's politics. And we all know what politics are like. Um, there is no more dangerous situation now than it was last year or the year before or any other time on our planet. There is no need to be worried and certainly there's no need to be afraid of anything. Fear in itself is a very destructive force. It creates environment in the body which is destructive and causes disease in itself. There is no need to be afraid. So what do we need to do to stay healthy and well and to look after our immune systems? Food, obviously, is the number one priority. That is the most important thing, food. But apart from food, the state of mind is very important. We need to be relaxed and we need to be joyful and we need to be positive. We need to focus on the positives in life. You know, if you think about it, at any time in human history for thousands of years, every day, There were some disasters going on in different places. There were um, problems going on. 
but at the same time, there were beautiful things going on. So if at any moment of existence of a human being on our planet, that human being is focusing only on the negative, then your life becomes negative, it becomes hell, it becomes very, very difficult, and the world looks very um, dangerous and scary and horrible. But if you focus on the good things in life, on what is uh, positive in the world, then your life becomes positive and joyful and good altogether. So that is what's important. And positive attitudes create certain positive biochemistry in the body. Certain hormones are produced and neurotransmitters and other chemicals are produced. And that creates health in your body. Negative attitudes, fear, worry, um, negative attitudes, they create negative biochemistry in the body. Negative hormones are produced, negative neurotransmitters are produced, various chemicals are produced, which will create disease and disorder in your body. So the frame of mind is important. Just ask your question, yourself a question, question, am I okay right now, this very moment? I'm sure that in the vast majority of people, the answer is going to be yes. You're perfectly fine. There's no danger. Your life is not in danger. Nothing terrible is happening right now. I, your children are around you, your family is around you, and things are ticking on nicely. So there's no need to generate fear, to generate any any of that negative background. It's important to sleep. It is important to be in contact with nature. It is vital for us to sunbathe, to be in the sun, to walk barefoot, to be in contact with nature. And it's vital for us to be in contact with other human beings, not on uh, social media outlets, but face-to-face. It's important for us to hug each other, to shake hands, to smile, to chat, to talk, um, to exchange love and positivity with each other. That is very, very important for us. And uh, people have been distracted by politics. Again, let me repeat this. The whole situation, recent situation in the last few months is purely political. It is purely designed specifically by certain political organizations to enrich themselves even more than they already are. So it has nothing to do with any danger personally for you. So it's important to people, for people to understand that. And as I see now, you know, as you walk around streets and uh, towns nowadays in Britain, you see that about 90% of people are not wearing masks. And that's a good news. That's lovely to see that, that people are starting to understand that it is a hoax. And uh, there's no need to wear masks. And there is no need for social distancing. And there is no need to be afraid of anything. Life goes on, just as it was before. Here here, here is the challenge, though, Natasha. Sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to kind of double-click into that. The challenge we have is as much as it makes perfect sense that your health, um, how good the day is, how you feel, your prospects for the future – is really dependent on your current state of mind. That makes perfect sense. And I think most people, whether they're educated in that space or not, will say, do you know what? Yeah, I should control my rumination, my negative thought patterns, and I should be more grateful. However, we're living in unprecedented times from a media perspective. The 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 conversation, the obsession, quite frankly, the obsession, not of only media, of the government, but of every individual Almost everything we are talking about is COVID-19 and the associated response. And therefore, I think it's very difficult. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible. It is very difficult for people to not fall into some level of despair, 
apathy, whether it be at the virus or the effects of the virus, or maybe they have awoken beyond that and realise the political structures and a political land grabbing is the problem right now. But even still, if you realise and accept that, then there's a level of despair or apathy that can come from just the political nightmare that we're in, the economic nightmare, the social destruction that we're in. And therefore, I think it's difficult for people to find a place where they can kind of turn all that off and be happy and be present. What are your what are your thoughts on how to navigate that? Because as I say, there's so much external pressure on you right now to focus in on those negatives. Well, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And the silver lining of this particular situation is that humanity is starting to understand that it is time for us to push the governments into their place, to put them in their place. It is time for every human being on this planet to take the power into their own hands, to take responsibility for their own individual lives into their own hands, and stop looking up to the government like to a big mommy or daddy who will take care of you. Because that is not the case, it has never been the case. If you look at the history of governments, governments initially, in the first place, thousands of years, um, appeared on the planet as a means to protect uh, with the wealthy, to, to serve the wealthy, protect the wealthy, protect their money, protect their assets. That is the purpose of government in the history of government, right from the beginning, right from the first government on the planet. And that has never changed. The government's prime purpose is to protect and to serve the big money, people with big money. And since now, uh, in the last few years, or maybe even the last few decades, we're not living in individual countries anymore. We live in a global community. Uh, the whole humanity moved into a global community, globalism. That's the, the that's a whole um, term, globalism nowadays. So there is a global government. And this government is made out of a very, very big money, a very wealthy elite. This wealthy elite at large, uh, its agenda is depopulation, it's eugenics. Uh, they believe that the planet is overpopulated, there are far too many human beings on the planet, and so they have put mechanisms into place to reduce the population of the planet. And uh, that is their agenda, and it has been uh, for quite a while now. Individual governments in individual countries are um, following the orders. They haven't got the freedom to make individual decisions. There are some governments which try to remain slightly free, such as Swedish government, for example, and uh, Taiwan and some other governments. But vast majority of the Western governments, they are just um, lined up as a rank and file and they follow the orders of this wealthy global elite. And wealthy global elite is uh, poised to make even more money than they already have on um, newly coming jobs for this uh, virus, which uh, um, from the point of view of any qualified virologist or any qualified medic is impossible. Coronaviruses mutate from person to person. You can never catch up with them. There can be no effective job for, for uh, such a thing. And, and yet uh, we've got already uh, about 150 different uh, formulations and the race amongst the pharmaceutical industry is very intense. They all, you know, elbowing each other and running ahead as fast as they can, trying to come up with this uh, solution. And uh, so far, uh, no success, because, again, this is this is a very, very uh, difficult undertaking. 
And um, what we have so far, whatever formulations have been created, are frankly not tested properly, not uh, safety tested, and uh, are loaded with dangers, a lot of dangers. Or dangers we we simply cannot quantify at this stage, more more than anything else, right? They could be perfect, but we don't know that. And that's the risk. Exactly. And uh, what's what's, uh, um, the problem for this uh, elite is that the humanity, the the, the people are waking up on the planet, realizing uh, the, the fallacy of the whole lockdown and the masks and the pandemic and the fear mongering. And by the way, there is no such thing as free media. Media is a servant of this global elite. So media and individual governments are ordered to continue scaremongering the population, to keep the population focused on this problem, focused on the fear of this problem. So when the vaccine finally comes out, people line up and and, uh, uh, submit themselves. But it's running between their fingers. They're not catching up with it. Mm. (laughs) I do do feel that. I hope hope that is the case. That's right. They're very worried. That is why the the propaganda coming through the media outlets is becoming more and more intense, and, and they're just trying their best. God bless them. Yeah, but let's come back to what we should do, actually, to stay healthy and well. Oh, no, b- before we before we do that, actually, Natasha, you know what, we've jumped straight into it. It was my 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 bad as a host. We jumped straight into this, and we didn't give you a, a bit of time just to explain, like, your background. So I kind of teed us up with, you know, your credentials, per se, but you clearly don't have a UK accent. And uh, <laughs> there's, there's some history and there's a story, no doubt, behind... Um, why you know what you know and what you what you support today and what you help with. So maybe can we just touch on that a little bit more? So what is your background? How have you come to be who you are today? And then we'll get back straight into it. I come from the Soviet Union, a country that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I've received my medical education in the Soviet Union, which was very diff- different. And uh, I come from a traditional society, which I value very much. I think that I've been uh, very fortunate to grow up in a traditional society with traditional values, traditional foods, traditional family values. And that that has given me me a wonderful background. I moved to the UK 30 years ago uh, through family, connection through family, through marriage. And uh, my first child was diagnosed autistic at the age of three, which threw me into a very steep learning curve. Very quickly, I realized that my own profession had absolutely nothing to offer my precious child. So I had to look elsewhere. I had to abandon my own profession and look elsewhere. And what I discovered that the answers are all to be found in nature and in natural approaches to health. And through that, uh, I went back to university. I got a degree here in the UK in the human nutrition. Um, And... uh, Using diet, using food, and by the way, food is the most powerful influence on human health. There is nothing more powerful on human health. There is no more powerful influence than food. And uh, by using food, by using appropriate education, by using other uh, approaches, uh, we were able to shake off autism. We were able to defeat this terrible condition. That's how my clinic began in this country. I worked with thousands of autistic children. And as I was working with these children, um, parents were bringing their siblings to me with hyperactivity, dyslexia, dyspraxia, asthma, eczema, diabetes type 1, rheumatoid arthritis, all kinds of mental and physical problems. And then I realized that the mothers and fathers are not healthy either. 
And, and that's how, through my clinical work, the concept of GAPS was born. GAPS stands for Gut and Psychology Syndrome and Gut and Physiology Syndrome. My first book called Gut and Psychology Syndrome came out in 2004. Uh, it's been translated into 22 languages all over the world. I never expected GAPS to become a global phenomenon. It is a movement all over the world where people uh, heal from all kinds of illnesses, physical and mental, at home using food without any involvement of any doctors or anybody else, any other medical professionals. And it is, it is an absolute blessing and it is wonderful. And it's these uh, people, I don't know how many of them are following all over the world, but it is certainly hundreds of thousands of people, if, if not more, maybe millions, I have no idea. And uh, I receive letters, I receive uh, back uh, feedback from these people. And I receive feedback from my GAPS practitioners because I have been training health practitioners for the last 10 years in the GAPS nutritional protocol, which I have designed. And I receive feedback from these practitioners all the time. And people are recovering with the use of the GAPS nutritional protocol, not only from autism, not only from dyslexia, dyspraxia, hyperactivity, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, anorexia, epilepsy. People are recovering from rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, cancer, allergies, psoriasis, eczema, uh, nephropathy, neuropathies, Guillain-Barre, all sorts of, you know, Hashimoto's, all sorts of physical and mental illnesses. So this year I have completed the second GAPS book called Gut and Physiology Syndrome. The first book focused on the brain and all the disorders that appear in the brain in this situation. The second book completes the GAPS concept. It adds up the whole, the rest of the body to the concept. So what do we do? What do we have in a GAPS uh, person? A GAPS person has abnormal gut flora. Majority of people know nowadays that we have some microbes living inside our digestive system. Well, recent research has discovered uh, that 90% of all cells in the human body are in our gut flora. 90%. That's what we've been given. That's the number we have which means your body is only 10%. It is a shell, a habitat for this mass of microbes that live inside you. And in a healthy person, this microbial community is highly organized and highly balanced and very diverse. There are fungi there, viruses, protozoa, bacteria, worms, flukes, archaea, all kinds of creatures living together in a harmonious, happy community where everything serves, everything supports everything, and everything and keeps each other in check, keeps each other in the right balance. And when that community is balanced, then your body is healthy and well. You have lots of energy, you have good vitality, you have clear brain, clear mind, you're functioning very well. Problem is, we human beings are very good at creating imbalances on our beautiful planet. Every time we take a chemical that has antibiotic properties, they kill microbes, we create an imbalance in the body. And antibiotics nowadays don't just come from doctors for people. Nowadays, people eat antibiotics for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and in between. Because majority of chemicals that our industrial agriculture is using on growing our crops and feeding the fed to our animals um, are antibiotics in their nature. So we consume antibiotics with food. Everything pretty much in supermarkets that you buy is laced with antibiotic-like chemicals. And if you've taken an antibiotic, it killed off a bunch of bacteria 
or other microbes that are susceptible to this particular antibiotic. These microbes have been controlling a myriad of other creatures, keeping them in check, keeping them in the right numbers and balanced community. Once you've knocked them out, all those other creatures suddenly get out of control. And microbes multiply very fast. They can produce billions of babies within an hour. So the balance is gone. Once the balance is gone, everything in the body goes wrong. Absolutely everything. Our microbial community in the gut takes a huge part in appropriate digestion and, uh, and absorption of food. So if, if your gut flora is damaged and abnormal, you are not digesting your food well. You're not absorbing it well. You are developing multiple nutritional deficiencies. At the same time, this microbial community damages the integrity of your gut wall. Your gut wall becomes porous, leaky, literally holes develop in your gut wall. This microbial community converts food in a whole uh, stream, millions and millions of poisonous chemicals. All of these chemicals absorb through that damaged gut wall. Another thing that happens, food doesn't get chance to be digested properly before it absorbs. It absorbs undigested through that damaged, leaky, porous gut wall. Then your immune system finds that undigested food in your bloodstream and in your lymph, looks at it and says, you're not food, I don't recognize you, and attacks these particles. And this attack manifests itself as a food allergy or intolerance. And food allergy and intolerance can show up as any symptom under the sun. It can be a, dro a drop in blood sugar level, it can be a drop in energy, it can be a migraine headache, it can be a skin rash, it can be a, a bout of cystitis, it can be an asthma attack or, or heart palpitations, and the reaction can be immediate or it can be delayed. So on any given day, you have no idea what you're reacting to. You can be reacting to a piece of meat you've just had for lunch, plus tomatoes you had yesterday, plus banana you had um, a week ago, plus something else you had two weeks ago. In reality, you are reacting to everything you eat because most foods don't get the chance to be digested properly before they absorb. So in a person with this situation, their digestive system, instead of being a source of nourishment for the person, becomes a major source of toxicity. A river of toxins flows from the gut into the blood, into the lymph, and then these um, liquids distribute that toxicity all over the body. If this toxic uh, river gets into your brain, you develop gut and psychology syndrome, which can manifest as any mixture of symptoms your brain can generate, your brain can produce, any mixture of symptoms. It can be uh, a psychotic attack, it can be memory lapses, it can be autism, it can be hyperactivity, it can be other behavioral problems, it can be epilepsy. It can be absolutely anything. If it gets into your lungs, this river, it can cause asthma, obstructive pulmonary disease or any other problem with your lungs. If it gets into your heart, it can cause atrial fibrillation. By the way, this situation gaps is a major cause of atrial fibrillation. It's an epidemic in the world. And other abnormalities in the heart rhythm and other problems with your heart. If it gets into your kidneys, it can cause nephropathy. A lot of toxins leave the body through urine. So once this toxicity circulates around your body, then uh, a lot of it is removed through urine. When this acrid toxic urine accumulates in your bladder, it strips off protective layers in your mucous membranes, in the bladder, and causes chronic inflammation in the walls of the bladder. So you get chronic cystitis. Your doctor tests your urine, finds no infection, says you can't have cystitis. This is not a, an infectious cystitis. It is a chemical cystitis. 
and the chemicals are coming from the activity of pathogenic microbes in your gut flora. So in order to heal that situation, that's where you have to focus. If it gets into your nervous system, you can get multiple sclerosis. And about 85% of our immune system is located in the gut wall. 85%. So your immune system, so your gut is the biggest and the most important immune organ in your body. And the conversation and the relationship between the immune system and the gut floor is very tight. They work as partners. They work very closely together, this tune. So when the gut floor is abnormal, the immune system doesn't function as it's supposed to, to do. It's, it's on the alert. It's launching inflammation all over the place. It's launching autoimmunity all over the place. Allergies, all sorts of things uh, go wrong in the body. The immune system tries to deal with the situation. All autoimmune disease is born in the gut. From my point of view, every autoimmune disease must be treated by the GAPS nutritional protocol. Mm -hmm. Whether this is in your nervous system, whether it's multiple sclerosis or myotrophic lateral sclerosis or a neuropathy, or whether it is a Hashimoto, or whether it is a rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis or psoriasis or any other autoimmune illness. The same with allergies. Every allergy, atopy, you know, whether you have hay fever or hives or eczema or asthma or anything else like that, begin from your gut. Every disease, every chronic disease begins in the gut. This is a statement that Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, made almost 2,000 years ago. And the more we learn with our modern scientific tools, the more we realize just how correct he was. Indeed, every disease, every chronic degenerative disease begins in the gut. Once you put that root of your, uh, the, the, the place where the roots of your health are, once you've put the roots right, once you've healed your gut, you've restored the normal balance of gut flora in your digestive system. Once your gut heals and seals its wall, what we do with the GAPS nutritional protocol, we heal and seal the gut wall of the person. In fact, we rebuild a new gut wall for the person. And once all those holes in the gut wall close up, get sealed, that river of toxicity stops and your body starts recovering. Your body starts cleaning up, all the debris are removed, uh, and the body starts recovering from all kinds of illnesses. If you talk to the mainstream medicine, they have pronounced all of these diseases incurable because they have no answer mm -hmm. for degenerative, uh, chronic degenerative diseases. For them, they are incurable because they have no cure. But the fact that your doctor doesn't have a cure doesn't mean that this information doesn't exist elsewhere. We live in a wonderful world of uh, abundant information and uh, the cures exist outside the mainstream medicine, and that's just because the way our mainstream medicine is designed, the way it functions. It has a place. Every form of healing has a place in this world. If you got run over by a bus, God forbid, you wouldn't want an ambulance to take you to a homeopath, would you? Mm -hmm. You need the mainstream doctor and fast. Because our mainstream medicine has wonderful methods of saving our lives, dealing with life and death situations when it comes to that. But when it comes to a chronic degenerative condition, the mainstream doctor perhaps is the last person you should go to because they will tell you that this is incurable. There is nothing they can do. All they can do is just give you drugs to control the symptoms, to make you a little bit more comfortable while the disease continues destroying your body. 
symptoms are the way your body communicates to you that you are damaging it, that you're doing something wrong to it. That's how your body calls for help. By taking mainstream drugs to suppress the symptoms, to suppress pain, to suppress inflammation, to suppress various other symptoms, you're basically giving your body a message, stop calling for help and suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. That's not a very good message to give to your body. So your disease will continue raging behind uh, you feeling a little bit better because you've suppressed the symptoms with the drugs, uh, but the disease will continue destroying your body. Where if you focus on healing and sealing your gut and changing your gut flora, if you focus on the roots of the disease, where it came from, then you address the root of the disease and the disease can go. And it is my own patients, you know, thousands and thousands of them. And people who have never had any consultations with me, who come out of the blue, who just bought my book, followed the protocol and recovered, that have taught me this, uh, this truth. I haven't got it from any book. I got it from living people from all over the world. And these are the people who come to me and say, I've recovered from multiple sclerosis. I recovered from Lyme disease. I recovered from rheumatoid arthritis. I recovered from psoriasis. I recovered from all sorts of illnesses, which um, for the mainstream doctor is inconceivable. And undoubtedly they will say, well, this is impossible because it's impossible for them. But it is possible for other practitioners and it is possible for other modalities and other methods of treatment um, around the world. So that is what GAPS Nutritional Protocol does. It puts the roots of your health in the right place. It normalizes your gut flora. It rebuilds the wall of your gut, heals and seals it. So your food starts digesting properly and absorbing properly. And as a result, nutritional deficiencies disappear in the body. You don't need any supplements. Human body has been beautifully designed. If you eat the right diet, if you eat properly, good quality food, and you can digest it and absorb it properly, your gut is in a fit state to do that. You don't need any supplements. You don't need to spend money on all these expensive pills. Mother Nature designed our bodies to get our nutrition from food, not from pills. And, uh, and all kinds of illnesses. Your immune system gets rebalanced. It gets nourished properly. It gets detoxified, gets rebalanced, so inflammation goes away, autoimmunity subsides, everything just straightens up in the body. Okay. It feels like we need to, thank you for that, by the way. Um, it feels like we need to enter into complexity to help people understand and bring some credentials and science to what we're talking about. But the reality is much, much simpler because the reality is if we look across the animal kingdom, Natasha, and any other animal knows what to eat. They have an animal-appropriate diet. Over the last 70 years, we've completely, completely lost that intuition because we've been hit over the head with propaganda left and right about, you know, whether it be an institutional, a business, or a government-led initiative to drive us to eat foods that are cheap or accessible or make money. We've completely forgotten how to eat. And I think if we can just return to that ancestral consistent way of eating sounds like we will achieve the 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 science uh, and the internal physiology and biology that you talk about which sounds complicated for many listeners but we return to that when we just start respecting our body and one thing you said that i, I really love it was um, you're talking about quieting or trying to suppress the inner voice for me it, it, it's analogous to having a kid screaming in your house and instead of 
trying to understand why that kid is distressed or hurt, you just plug some earphones in. And like, that's never the solution, is it? You want to understand yes, the root that's, cause. That's and that's unfortunately what medicine is doing, right? Is we're just plugging in earphones in and just going, oh, that noise is just annoying. <laughs> if we can just quiet it down, everything is good. But we're not addressing why the knee's hurting or why the gut's hurting or why we have skin conditions or why we have diabetes. It's like, let's get to the root cause. And the root cause is actually pretty straightforward if you just eat Absolutely. the right foods. Absolutely. Humanity has been distancing itself from nature. People have removed themselves from nature further and further away. Our bodies are part of nature. The further away we move from nature, the more we lose the truth, the more lost and confused we are, and the easier we are to manipulate. People have to return back to nature. We have to start growing our own vegetables. We need to have chickens in our backyard. We need to uh, get back in contact with soil and with nature. And, and that's where you start absorbing the truth, literally, through all of your senses, viscerally, <laughs> not just, you know, by reading it in a book somewhere or, or, or listening to somebody. Uh, you start getting the truth from the trees, from the earthworms, from the soil, from the plants, from the animals. And you just know on a deep, deep level that this is the truth. You don't need any proof. You don't need any double-blind placebo-controlled. You don't need any studies. You don't need anything. You just know. It's a knowingness that you know that this is the truth. And we and do that's have that intuition within true. us. We've just completely quietened it. We've we've told them to. We told us ourselves to ignore the intuition. Go and have a vegan diet, even though you yearn for a bit of bacon. Ignore those yearnings. Ignore you know, those cravings for foods that just make you feel happy inside that's just that's neanderthal that's just weird stuff that you know we've moved on from that right we've moved on from that crazy <laughs> let's now go and become modern and make synthetic food because that's what the that's what the world needs right it's just ludicrous it's ludicrous natasha since you since you've mentioned vegetarianism um i, I would like to talk about it a little bit please yes we live in a world of nutritional misinformation and generally speaking misinformation and manipulation um in health altogether, because manipulation comes from powers who make money on this manipulation. It's it's it comes back to the root of all evil. <laughs> you know, if if you put money as a cornerstone of anything, um, that very thing gets destroyed from the root. So, I have been getting all these anorexic girls in my clinic and boys, a few boys as well with anorexia and bipolar disorder and psychotic episodes and other problems with mental illnesses. And uh, very quickly transpired that vast majority of them started as perfectly healthy children, perfectly healthy teenagers, until they've chosen a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle. And it's due to vegetarianism and veganism that they have become mentally ill and physically ill. And that made me very interested in the whole subject. I started researching it. Very quickly, I've discovered that there is no solid science for us to rely upon in this uh, area. None. Not one study can be trusted. All of these uh, studies have been um, incorrectly designed, incorrectly analyzed, and uh, frankly, uh, made by the pro-vegetarian lobby. So uh, it's manipulated. We cannot trust any of these studies. One of the biggest lies in that area is the China study. You cannot trust a word that comes from the China study. So that made me look at the basic sciences of physiology, biochemistry, uh, clinical studies, zoology, and agriculture. And having looked into all of that and having taken all the clinical experience I have and clinical experience from my colleagues, 
I have written a book called Vegetarianism Explained. And uh, it's very important. I believe that it is very, very important for everybody who considers a vegetarian lifestyle to read that book first. Because nowhere else you will find the information that I have put in that book. Uh, it's a very, very important information. What people need to understand that there is a difference between how human body processes animal foods and plants. Mother Nature gave us two groups of foods on the planet. Animal foods, meat, fish, eggs, and dairy, and plant foods, grains, beans, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and, and all sorts of um, other plants. And all energy on our, human, on our beautiful planet is recycled. The new energy comes from the sun. In order for something to capture that energy of the sun and turn it into solid matter that we can touch and we can eat, Mother Nature created plants. They have photosynthesis, they grab hold of the sunlight and turn it into green mass. In order then for something else to digest the plant matter and to get the energy of the sun through plants, Mother Nature created herbivorous animals. And in order for them to be able to digest the plants, Mother Nature equipped them with a very special digestive system called rumen. Cows, goats, sheep, antelope, deer, elephants, giraffe, and so on, they have a huge multi-chamber stomach full of microbes. It's not the cow that digests the grass that she eats. It's those microbes in her rumen that digest the grass for her. Because a, a simple fact, scientific fact that we've known from 1930s is that nothing on this planet can digest plant matter. Nothing apart from microbes. Only microbes are equipped to digest the plant matter. And this fact Mother Nature used in designing the rumen of herbivorous animals. It packed it full of a very uh, diverse community of microbes, which digest the grass, the, the vegetation for these animals. In order then for something else to consume the sunlight in the form of herbivorous animals, Mother Nature created the next group of uh, creatures on the planet. It created omnivores and predators. And we human beings, our bodies belong in that group. We haven't got a rumen. We have a little stomach, which is almost sterile. It has virtually no microbes in it if it's healthy, because it produces hydrochloric acid. The amounts of acid can be tremendous. The acidity can be below 1 pH when we are hungry. And that's a very hostile environment for any microbe to live in. So the only things that human stomach can digest, and when you swallow food, it goes through the pipe, through the esophagus, and lands in your stomach. For, for a few hours. The only things that human stomach is able to digest and properly break down are meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. Plants are indigestible for the human beings. That's a news I would like to break to your listeners. They haven't heard that, and they will never hear, hear this from dietitians, nutritionists, or anybody else, or doctors. Plants are indigestible for the human stomach. They sit in the human stomach, and they don't digest to any large degree, they're just waiting. Then the whole mass is passed into the several meters of intestines where the digestive process is completed and food is absorbed. The only things the intestines can absorb are things that were properly digested higher up in the stomach. And that is meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. Plants, again, do not digest to any large degree in the intestines and do not absorb to any degree in the intestines. 
they go through, they contribute some juices, some cofactors, a few vitamins, like a vitamin C, for example, or vitamin K or something else, and, uh, and then they, they, they pass through. Eventually, plants land in the bowel, and that is the equivalent of the rumen in the human body. That's where the majority of our gut flora lives. That's, that's where the biggest uh, um, microbial community lives. And they do their tricks, the same thing they do in the rumen of a cow. The problem is, in the cow, her rumen is at the beginning of her digestive system, before absorption happens. In us human beings, our rumen is at the end, after the absorption has already happened higher up. It's too late for the absorption. So some things are extracted from plants, such as uh, carbohydrates are converted into short-chain fatty acids, which, by the way, are fully saturated fats, very important for us, and they sustain us between meals. And some vitamins are produced and some things are produced. But again, you know, the bulk of nutrition to sustain the physical structure of your body, and that is protein and fat, comes from animal foods for the human beings. Meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. Because they are properly digested at the beginning of your digestive system in the stomach, and they arrive in the, in, in the shape into your intestines to be absorbed. All cells in the human body only live a short life. They work very hard. They get old. They get tired. They, they get uh, killed and removed. And new baby cells are born to replace them. In order to give birth to trillions of new baby cells every day, human body needs building materials. It needs protein and it needs fat. Because about 70% of human body is water. If you remove that water, the dry weight, what remains, is about 50-50 protein and fat. If we take protein from the human body to a laboratory, it has been done, these things have been well researched, and analyze it in the laboratory, in its biochemical structure, human protein is very similar to proteins in meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. Plants are full of proteins. One of the most researched protein is gluten. And the more we research it, the more we realize that nobody can digest it, it damages everybody. Plants are full of proteins, but these proteins are indigestible for the human digestive system, extremely damaging mm -hmm. for the whole human body, not only the digestive system. And they have the wrong amino acid profile. They cannot be building materials for our cell regeneration, for our bodies to maintain themselves, rebuild themselves, or heal any damage in themselves. The same with fat. When we take human fat to a laboratory, analyze it, we find out that it is in its biochemical structure almost identical to fats in meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. Plants are full of fats, but these fats are polyunsaturated. They are completely unsuitable for building our human fat. We need them in tiny little amounts. So a handful of nuts per day or fresh vegetables or fresh fruit will provide you with enough. You don't need a lot of these fats. What we need, the bulk of fat consumption for human beings must come from animals. It needs to be pork fat, lamb fat, beef fat, goose fat, duck fat, butter, ghee. These are the most natural fats for us to have, the most nourishing fats for us to have, and the fats that rebuild 50% of your dry weight in the body. Fat is a structural element. We can't live without fats. Your heart is sitting in a thick chamber of fully saturated fat. This is its energy store. That's where the heart gets its energy from, from this chamber. Your kidneys are sitting in the same layers. 
your pancreas, all of your organs are, are hanging and cushioned uh, by uh, layers of fat. Fat is a structural element of the human body. Every cell membrane, every, uh, every membrane of every organelle inside your cells is a fat, is made out of fat and cholesterol. So all of these things are absolutely essential and only animal foods can provide them for you in an easily digestible, easily absorbable and easily assimilable form. Only animal foods. So to summarize on this, the foods that feed us humans and build the physical structure that you live in, your heavy bones, your big muscles, your big brain, your, your lungs, your liver, your, your heart, your digestive system, all of these organs are physical organs. They require huge amount of building materials to maintain their structure and to heal any damage, to propagate themselves all the time. The only suitable materials for that process for your physical structure come from animal foods, meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. Plants cannot provide them and do not provide them. All traditional cultures, and I come from one of those traditional cultures. I understand it from childhood, from infant, infanthood. <laughs> um, all traditional cultures understood this. My grandparents, the most important piece of anything on your plate was the meat. You could leave potatoes, you could leave vegetables, you could leave plant matter. That didn't matter whether you ate it or not. But the meat was sacred and precious and you must eat it. And that meat was always with about an equal amount of fat on it. And it was essential to eat the fat and the meat. When, when we had a chicken, the most precious part that everybody tore off immediately and consumed was the skin and the fat and the backside and the, the brown meat, not the empty breast, which has very, very poor nutritional uh, value. You know, So the same with goose. It's the fat in the goose that was the most valuable bit and the skin of the goose, which is fatty and all, all the other things. So that's what people need to understand. And I'm afraid that that standard nutritional science, which is which is funded by food industry and agricultural industry, will never tell you these facts. Yeah. All vegetarians and vegans need to understand that. It is possible to be a healthy vegetarian as long as you continue consuming some animal foods to sustain the physical structure of your body. And majority of vegetarians uh, uh, do it with dairy, full-fat dairy, good quality dairy, and uh, eggs. They eat lots and lots of eggs. Veganism is not a diet. It should not be called a diet. It is a form of fasting. I went to India just, uh, just about you know six months before I was started writing this vegetarian book. Everything in life happens for a reason. <laughs> I'm absolutely convinced of that. Mm. And uh, the guide in India told us that, look at that group of people with the black clothes with golden rim. These are Hindu pilgrims, and they travel long distances to their sacred sites, and part of their pilgrimage is a fast, a 42-day fast. And next day, as it happened, a group of these people sat on the, on the beach. So I stopped and I spoke to them. In India, pretty much everybody speaks English. So, and I've asked them about this fast. I said, so what is this uh, fast that you, you have to stay on for 42 days? And these people told me, yes, it's very difficult. It's an extremely hard thing to do, um, but we have to do it. And I said, well, so what is it? Do you drink water or do you, are you allowed to eat something? And I said, well, we're allowed to eat only. Listen to this. Rice, vegetables, fruit, lentils, beans, <laughs> vegetable oil, and bread. And I thought, ah. Oh, that's that the like West a vegan diet. <laughs> 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 that's 
These people for thousands and thousands of years called this a fast, would do it no longer than 42 days, call it very, very difficult, and do it only as part of a religious practice, and call it a fast. Veganism is not a diet, it is a fast. It is a, you, you consume a huge amount of plant matter, and the, what's the purpose of eating plants? Plants don't feed us to any large degree. But what they do for us, they cleanse us on the inside. They have powerful cleansing substances in them, the plants. So they clean us up on the inside. They, they provide uh, phenols, salicylates, uh, anti-nutrients, all sorts of phytates, all sorts of things that absorb and then remove toxins from the body uh, and, and various uh, um, debris from the body. So that's their purpose. So there are many toxic people in our modern world, overweight people with a huge amount of toxicity stored in their bodies. To do a vegan fast for them for a couple of weeks is a good idea. Good idea. But then at a certain point, when the body finished cleansing, and of course, you know, a cleaner body always feels better than a toxic one, so the person will start feeling better. If they're not eating processed plants, of course, if they're eating fresh and natural plants. Um, but then at a certain point, the body will finish cleansing, and it will become hungry. And it will give you a signal. I finished cleansing now. I'm hungry now. Feed me. The way the body will give you this signal is through desire. It will give you desire for a roast chicken, for a lamb chop, for a pot of cream, for a piece of cheese, you know, for a, for a big fried breakfast, bacon and eggs. Problem is many vegans in our modern world do it for political reasons, emotional reasons, religious reasons, and other such reasons, and they don't listen to their body. They, uh, they override the signal and they force their body to continue fasting when the body actually needs feeding. And that is the moment when the body has no choice but to start tearing apart less important tissues to feed the brain, the heart, the lungs, the liver, and other vital organs. So it starts tearing apart the muscle and the bones. The person starts losing muscle mass and starts losing bone mass to feed vital organs. And, and that's when the degenerative disease sets in. And I have seen no end of people who have destroyed themselves, destroyed their lives through veganism. Vast majority, pretty much every vegan eventually finishes up in that pot. Um, and uh, it's amazing that some people can pull it for quite a few years, pull this trick on their body, uh, quite a few years until they can't do it anymore, any longer, because the degenerative disease um, sets in. So... That's about vegetarianism. So people need to understand this. Um, in this book, I also explain where the propaganda for vegetarianism come from. It comes from Monsanto, Bayer, DuPont, and other agrochemical companies. Because the bulk of profit for these companies comes from growing plants. Producing animal foods is unprofitable for them and troublesome. So they want the whole planet to be vegan. It is within their commercial interests. And because they control the agricultural policies of Western governments, they put their own people into Western governments. They entirely keep it under control, all agricultural policies of Western governments. So the Western governments are spouting this propaganda onto the population that we should all be vegan, that we should stop eating meat, that meat is dangerous, eggs are dangerous, butter is dangerous, we vilify all these animal foods, and just, you know, fruit and vegetables and nothing else. Just sit on, sit on all of that. And that actually fits into the eugenics idea of the, um, the wealthy elite that rules the world now as well. Because veganism in the West uh, has been found by religious orders, Christian religious orders, to be a very effective um, 
method to reduce any sexual energy in the body. Because a lot of, uh, in, in, in the Middle Ages, a lot of um, monk orders and nun orders, they were not allowed to have any contact with opposite sex. And their sexual energy was a problem for them. So they were looking for a way of getting rid of it. And they found that vegan diet, um, vegan regimen is perfect. Menstruations disappear, libido disappears, they become infertile, and there isn't even any interest in the opposite sex at all. Because all our sex hormones are made from cholesterol in the body. That's the building material that they make it from. There is no cholesterol in plants. It comes only from animal foods. And saturated animal fats are essential also for production of, of, of sex hormones and normal functioning of reproductive function in the human body for us to have children. So um, if the whole planet went vegan, uh, then, you know, the population will reduce dramatically and quite quickly. Mm, <laughs> so, so that, that, that is another fascinating, thing. Fascinating, Natasha. Lo I love that. And we've had a few, whether it be carnivore advocates or keto advocates um, or just general kind of traditional nourishment advocates on this podcast so you are preaching to the converted at least me and i think the majority of our audience but it's always good to get a finer point on why the body is 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 absolutely built the human body is absolutely built for animal-based nutrition i want to key into this just a couple of things kind of pulling back onto the kind of covid response we've seen two things at least in this country in the uk we've seen um the obesity program spun up by boris uh, and co that we must fight obesity because that seems to be a consistent comorbidity. And if we can get our hand, grip, uh, our hand over that, we should be able to at least give people some level of protection. So it's good that at least they're playing lip service, but I believe it's only lip service at the moment. And you combine that with perhaps a more hearty, um, careful and considerate approach, which is by Dr. Asim Mahotra, who's trying to push the message that really this is about metabolic health. And if we can understand metabolic health and metabolic syndrome, and insulin resistance, we could resolve much of people's chronic issues, weight issues, and then immune immunocompromised issues. I think that is a, a great point. I want to key off on that. So as you think about Boris's obesity program, and you understand that probably 70 plus percent of people's diets today are coming from um, um, plant-based material of some way, shape or form, some refined carb and various other bits of leafy greens, etc. But most people are eating probably 70 plus percent of, of plant-based material. Everyone's getting overweight. There's lots of obesity. I think over 60% of this country is overweight, uh, and a proportion of that is obese. So we definitely have a problem. We have a problem of chronic diseases. We have a problem of diabetes. We have a problem of cancer in this country. We have a problem of heart attacks. We have a problem of hypertension. Are we? How do you kind of square this away? One, do you think Boris is on the money in trying to drive a obesity program? And two, what do you think about metabolic health and how is that tied into what you're saying around kind of gut health? I have explained the whole subject in my book, Put Your Heart in Your Mouth, what really causes heart disease and what we can do to prevent and even reverse it. I explained the metabolic syndrome in detail in that uh, book because, you know, many people were asking me the same question when I would explain the GAPS diet to them, which is the key of the GAPS nutritional protocol and the GAPS diet uh, is full of fats and all the fats we eat are animal fats. And of course the propaganda has been 
<clears throat> raging about it now for uh, since since 1950s. Um, that animal fats cause heart disease and cholesterol is dangerous and so on and so forth. So having explained that animal fats and cholesterol not only do not cause heart disease or any other disease in people, but they prevent it and reverse it, I thought I'd better write a book about this. And, and that's, what, <laughs> that's what I've done. I've written a book that I could just give to these people to read. So please read that book and you will understand the whole issue in detail. All of my books are written in an easy to understand language. I write for the reader, um, but they are fully referenced for the professionals, for those who are scientifically minded and want to see the references. So they're fully referenced, these books. Metabolic syndrome basically is, where does it come from, metabolic syndrome? It comes from your breakfast cereal in the morning, from your toast and marmalade, from your sandwiches, from your pasta, from your bagels, from your crisps and biscuits, and from your other snacks, and from sugar in your coffee and tea and your sweets, and uh, other sugary things. It's sugar, sugar, sugar upon sugar. Sugar is the most addictive substance on the planet. Way more addictive than cocaine, morphine, heroin, or, or, or anything else. Second after sugar, the most addictive substance on the planet is bread. Bread. Vast majority of humanity is addicted to both. And like any uh, real addict, they are completely blind to this addiction and do not want to accept the addiction and will uh, ridicule everybody who suggests such a thing. Like any good uh, <laughs> drug addict, the drug addict will do the same thing to you or an alcoholic or an addict to uh, something else. So that's, what, that's where it's all com coming from, from the diet, from, from what people are eating. They're eating processed carbohydrates for breakfast, lunch and dinner and in between. And what happens that overloads the body with sugars, I'm not talking about table sugar, I'm talking about glucose and maltose and other sugars. Because the result of digestion of your bread and your pasta and anything made out of flour and your uh, horrible, horrible, horrible breakfast cereals, horrendous soft drinks full of um, terrible ingredients and other processed carbohydrates. All of these things, after they've been digested, they absorb as sugars. And because they are pre-digested in the factories, they are heavily, heavily processed. Your digestive system virtually has no work to do with these things. They absorb very quickly. They flood your blood with enormous amount of sugars. Human body has, been, has not been designed for such an onslaught. It takes sugars, but it has to take them in a, in a trickle in small amounts and in certain forms. So when you eat natural plants, you get sugars from them, but you get them in a certain form and they absorb slowly. They raise your blood sugar level slowly. But when you've had a, a piece of toast or a piece of bread or a sandwich or a pasta or a breakfast cereal or, or, or sugar itself, your blood sugar skyrockets literally within minutes after you've eaten. And that is a dangerous situation. The blood sugar level within the human body is controlled very tightly because too high, too low can kill. So the body has special mechanisms for dealing with that sort of situation. So when you've had your Cocoa Pops for breakfast, or whatever it is, and your blood sugar skyrocketed immediately, that puts your body into a, a, a shock state, and shock amounts of hormone insulin are manufactured in your pancreas immediately. Your pancreas is put under, under, under huge strain to manufacture uncontrolled amounts of insulin to deal with that sugar onslaught. What insulin does, it removes sugar out of the blood into the cells in the body, largely muscle cells and other cells. 
It's like a key that opens little doors on the wall of every cell and pushes the sugar in, ushers the sugar inside the cells. And then the cells inside use the sugar for producing energy, for producing other, for other functions. The problem is our cells have a limited ability how much sugar they can take. They can only take so much. They can't, they can't be stuffed full of, uh, of this substance. And uh, so at certain point when they are being stuffed full because the blood is just full of sugar and the insulin is trying to normalize that situation, so it stuffs the cells with sugar, they can't take it uh, that much. That sugar just uh, changes pH in there, changes the whole environment in the cell and lays the ground for cancer. Sugar consumption and wheat consumption are number one causes of cancer. And uh, so the cells become, they say, enough. Enough. We are stuffed. We can't do this. Because as soon as the breakfast cereal has been sorted out, the person is eating biscuits or eating chocolate bars or having a sandwich or having a pasta or something else again. And uh, the cells start destroying those little doors that insulin opens on their walls. They become insulin resistant. That situation develops usually in the childhood nowadays, in the Western world, certainly, because children are living on sweets and crisps and sandwiches and breakfast cereals and soft drinks um, in, in these countries. So uh, that situation starts developing quite early in the childhood. So when insulin then cannot, the, the, the number of doors on every cell are reduced, so insulin cannot stop the cell anymore full of sugar as much as it could before, but the person still still eating lots of sugars. Blood sugar is still high in the person. What is the body to do in that situation? It produces more insulin and more insulin. And the person finishes up with permanently high levels of insulin in the blood. And that is called metabolic syndrome. Too much insulin in the blood. What happens in that situation? Insulin is a pro-inflammatory hormone. It will cause inflammation, systemic inflammation in your body, and that inflammation cannot be terminated. You will start getting arthritis. You will start getting headaches. You will start getting painful joints and painful muscles and, and pains here and pain there because inflammation is pain. And most importantly, insulin is a master fat storage hormone. As long as you have too much insulin in your blood, you'll be storing everything you eat as fat. A piece of lettuce will be stored as fat. A cucumber will be stored as fat. Everything gets stored as fat because that's what insulin does. It stores everything as fat. And initially that will be stored in the appropriate places, under your skin, on your thighs, on your belly, you know, around those areas. But if that situation continues, at certain point pancreas gets exhausted. It can't keep overproducing such humongous amounts of insulin all the time. It gets exhausted and that mechanism gets broken. And that's when you become insulin-dependent uh, diabetic. That's when that situation develops. So all of this uh, metabolic syndrome, too much insulin in your blood, basically, that's what metabolic syndrome is. Uh, all of these things uh, lay the ground for obesity, for cancer, for diabetes, for heart disease, and for Alzheimer's disease. And for chronic inflammation in the body, chronic inflammatory diseases, which then lays the ground for many other diagnostic labels that the person can receive. It is a disastrous, disastrous situation. And people have been doing that for, for decades now. All the generations of people who now live into their 80s and some even into 90s, they have more resilient mechanisms because they were born before the Second World War. 
They've acquired healthy gut flora from their parents. They had no vaccinations. They had no antibiotics in their youth and childhood. They have better quality bodies than people who were born in the last few decades, particularly children who were born in the last 10 years. About 30, at least 30 percent or even more percent of children in the English-speaking countries in the Western world uh, are now estimated uh, to have such a poor health, they're not going to outlive their parents. That's how poor their constitution is. And these numbers are growing all the time. We have an absolute disastrous epidemic of autism. When I uh, was training as a medical doctor, the whole world was diagnosing one child in 10,000 with autism. It was such a rare disorder. Majority of doctors have never seen it in their professional practice. And the whole population of the planet never heard such a word, autism. Today, everybody knows what it is. Everybody has seen an autistic child because it's an absolute epidemic. And these researchers have already predicted that between 20, 20 and 25, thereabouts somewhere, we're going to be diagnosing one child in two. In the English-speaking countries, half of our children will be autistic. Crazy. And the other half is not going to be healthy either. They're going to be hyperactive, dyslexic, dyspraxic, schizophrenic, obsessional, obsessive-compulsive, oppositional defiant, have diabetes type 1, have rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, eczema, allergies, a whole uh, bouquet of, of things. It is hardly to, uh, it, We hardly see any healthy children nowadays already or healthy babies nowadays already. And, and this is an absolute avalanche coming upon humanity. By the way, those big money eugenicists don't need to worry. The white population of the world is dying out already. Because this half of children, autistic, and the other half that are sick, are not likely to be able to have children themselves. Mm. Unfortunately, other countries, the, the less developed countries, who still live on a subsistence level, who uh, live according to their traditional uh, values, who have a goat in the back garden and have their chickens and have their own vegetable plot and live in a clean environment, they are still very capable to procreate. They have many children and their children are healthy, far healthier than children in the Western world. So they will continue to procreate. So in the next few decades, our children and uh, will see a change in the color of humanity. The white race will be dying out because of all this, because of gaps and because of what's happening with the diet and the environment. They will be dying out, while Africa and Asia will continue procreating rapidly. But they are adopting the Western lifestyles and Western ways of doing things quite rapidly as well, so they'll catch up. Give them a few more decades and they will catch up. So the population of the planet will naturally reduce due to all these health factors, to the declining health in our children generation after generation. There's no need for any drastic measures that, uh, you know, the world wealthy elite are scheming upon. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, it's, it's horrible to hear, but it's true. Um, I think about my daughters. I've got two young daughters and they have friends and, and it, it saddens me every time they tell me what their kids, what their friends' favourite foods are or what they have for lunch or dinner. It's almost exclusively pasta. Pasta, like pasta for every meal or or cereal, or bread. And my kids know better now. They have pasta maybe once a week. You know, we don't shun them from all modernity, but we we do treat them right from wrong and what's nourishing and what's 
you know, not nourishing. I understand that sometimes they're going to have non-nourishing foods, but they're going to be the minority of their diet. But it just saddens me to hear that almost all of their friends, their favorite meals are pasta. And some of them just have pasta like with nothing else. They don't even want anything on there. They just want pure pasta. And it clearly is addictive. Um, I understand that. I went through most of my life being completely addicted to sugar and carbs without realizing, not knowing to even call it that. Um, I do I do genuinely worry that people do not see that this addiction to refined carbs and um, poofers, vegetable oils through processed food, is doing nothing good for our body. But as we t- talk about obesity, we understand obesity is a problem. It's an expression of insulin resistance, as you've rightly said. So there is this move now to say, hey, you, like this isn't, you know, if you want to help yourself, you're going to have to lose some of that weight. Eat less, move more. That's the narrative. Eat less, move more. Is that narrative the right narrative to eat less, move more? And by the way, the eat less involves, if you take a look at any of the literature and what they're pushing on us right now is more fruits and vegetables, lower your fat consumption, eat less, right? Versus nourish your body into a good, healthy body weight. Do you think that that has any legs because you talk about veganism or vegetarian uh, or veganism in particular being some form of quote unquote fast and we know people can lose weight on a clean vegan diet would you would you prescribe um a short burst of vegan nutrition for say 40 days on the you know on the lead up to winter to let people lose the weight they need to lose and then maybe pivot to something more nourishing? Or do you think that is just, no, that's not a good idea and we should do things differently in terms of losing weight and then nourishing our immune system ready and able to fight back the external pathogens that you know we come across every once in a while, whether it be influenza, rhinovirus, RSV, coronavirus? The first thing that needs to be said that uh, the advice to eat less and exercise more is impossible for an obese person. Neither of them is important. Exercise is downright dangerous for them because of the amount of weight that they carry. It's like, you know, a normal person putting two sacks of potatoes on your shoulders and then try to run or exercise with that. Would you like to try that? No, I don't think many people would like to try that. Uh, and that's that's what you're basically doing to an obese person. Their heart basically may not survive such an exercise. They should not be exercising, these people. Second, eat less is impossible if you're an addict and you're hungry. Obese people are hungry and they have severe nutritional deficiencies because they eat foods which do not nourish them. They just eat one variety of processed carbohydrates, which pile, which get converted rapidly into fat and get laid on these people as fat. But their bodies are starving for proper food, starving for proper nourishment. And their bodies are made out of poor quality materials because they're starving for protein and starving for fat. Remember, human body is made out of protein, fat and water. There is no place for carbohydrates in the human body where we are piling up carbohydrates, and that's what plants are. Plants are largely carbohydrates. Proteins are indigestible in them, unsuitable for us, and and so so are the the fats in the plants. So it isn't the right thing for uh, uh, an obese person to do, to stop, to eat less and to to exercise. What they need to do, they need to go on the GAPS diet or your type of diet where they eat plenty of animal foods, full fat. 
And the more fat these people eat, the quicker they recover and the quicker they lose weight. And they lose it healthily. Mm. They lose weight and at the same time they rebuild their bodies from quality materials, quality protein, quality fat. So their muscles become stronger. Their bones become stronger. Their brains think clearer. They sleep better. They feel better. Their immune system starts working because their immune system is a very hungry organ. It requires high-quality nutrition. Why do you think 85% of the immunity is in the gut wall? Not only because of gut flora, but because the immune system takes the pick of the best mm-hmm. nutrients that we absorb from our food. Uh, and because it's a, it's a hungry organ, it needs feeding all the time. And it requires high-quality protein and high-quality fats. So that is what these people need to eat. They need to have eggs and bacon for breakfast. Forget the vegetables. Drop them in the bin. They don't, you don't need it. Human beings can live without plants perfectly well all together without fruit and vegetables. Besides, all fruit and vegetables that you buy in supermarkets is full of glyphosate, full of other agricultural chemicals, grown in exhausted soils. Major, many of them are done with hydroponics. They have never seen the soil altogether. They're grown in hydroponic systems where they sit in water and that water is full of chemicals and they get whatever you know nutrition they, they need these plants from chemicals basically grow your own if you want vegetables you find a friend who's got an allotment and this friend is using manure on that allotment not chemicals and you buy vegetables from this friend or you grow your own that's the only fruit and vegetables that have value for your body nothing bought in a supermarket is going to feed you properly have your, your cooked breakfast, you have, a, have a kippah for breakfast, have eggs and bacon, have a, a, a sausage without any filler, just meat and, and vegetables in it uh, for breakfast. And uh, have a good soup, properly made soup for lunch. And properly made soup needs to be made on meat stock. Meat stock that is made at home. That is the basis and the staple in the GAPS diet. You need to research meat stock and learn how to do it. This used to be a skill in every traditional society. The first thing that every every person cooked, every woman cooked, was meat stock. You didn't need to explain even to a five-year-old child what is meat stock and how to make it. In this world, I find they have to explain this to uh, people, fully grown adults who have never seen it, never never tasted it, never cooked it, don't even know what it is. And unfortunately, that there's a yuck factor. Right, there's a yuck factor to that now. There's no, a, no, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just talking about the, the response from the, from, from the average person not hearing it is, that sounds yucky because there's bones and stuff boiling in a pot. Um, it sounds like you're a Neanderthal. Like we've gone beyond this idea of you know, uh, boiling bones, and it's also inconvenient, right? So there's, there's this trifactor of yuck, old school, and inconvenient because clearly we've been propagandized to put it in its box and say it's it's traditional but no longer needed. How do you get people past the, hey, making my own soup out of like bones and meat just sounds like one, a lot of work, and two, it kind of doesn't fit the, the social expectation of what our food is today? Because people remove themselves from nature so far away. We have, that's what I said, we have to go back to nature. If you had an animal yourself, you didn't just go and buy a piece of plastic in a supermarket. If you had a cow yourself or a, or a bullock yourself, you've spent two years growing that bullock. You love that bullock. You fed it apples, you fed it the best grass, you, you stroked it, the bullock has a name and everything else. And the time comes to kill it. 
you have to participate in that. You have to take part in that. Because that's how that's how life is organized on this planet. Everything eats everything. Then, when that bullock is slaughtered, because you've spent two years growing it from birth, because you loved it, because you did your absolute best to keep him happy and healthy and well-nourished, this bullock, you will never throw a morsel away of that animal. You will make sure that every morsel of that animal is consumed. Everything is used simply out of respect and love for that animal. Nothing should be discarded. Nothing should be thrown away. So if you look at the whole carcass of a, of a bullock like that, how much pure muscle, muscle steak do you find on that animal? Very little. 90% of that animal is connective tissue, so-called connective tissue. It's bones, it's ligaments, it's tough ligamentous muscles and fascias, it's organs, which are vital to it as well on any animal. So when you say the word meat in the Western world to people, they see steak, they yeah. see pure lean muscle of the animal. That is not what meat is. That is not what traditional cultures understood under the word meat. No, real meat is a piece of a chunk of animal where there is a bone in the middle, there are ligaments, there are fascias, there is some muscle on it, but this muscle is has got many, many layers of very tough collagenous tissues in there, which you will never be able to chew unless you've cooked it in water for three, four hours. And that's what traditionally people did for thousands and thousands of years because there was no other way of cooking it. You can't just flip it three minutes on each side and it's mm -hmm. ready. Not at all. <laughs> that's not what meat is. In fact, eating lean muscle mass of any animal, you can get ill. It is not good for you because muscle fibers must come with fat and must come with collagen and connective tissue and other, uh, other parts of the animal. The whole thing has to be consumed. That's how Mother Nature designed it. And even our science keeps telling us that eating meat is unhealthy because meat in their minds is pure lean muscle. You don't take something natural, isolate a little bit out of it, throw everything else away, and then say, this is it. No, you have to be holistic in how you eat. So you take a part of a leg of that animal with everything on it. Everything, the bone inside, the bone marrow, which is an absolute balsam for your immune system and your brain, must be consumed. But in order to consume it, you need to cook it well. You need to cut the bone uh, before you cook. You cook it, and then you bang the bone on a wooden chopping board, and the bone marrow falls out. And that's an absolute remedy, medicine, for your immune system, for any person with immune, immune abnormalities, particularly now in all this scare that people live in. And all the ligaments and all the, the, the joint, the bone itself, all of this will contribute into the liquid that you, you put that chunk in a pan, you fill it up with water, you add salt and pepper, you can add some vegetables if you like, or spices if you like to that, and you cook it for about three or four hours. You simmer it under a lid. The resulting liquid, the bouillon, that is what's called meat stock. This is not bone broth. Forget bone broth, meat stock. And that is what is the basis of health of every human being and has been for hundreds of thousands of years on our planet. Because people lived close to nature. They lived close. They had their own farms. They hunted. They, they slaughtered the animals themselves. And nothing was thrown away because when you are uh, living in that environment, 
you basically cannot throw anything else away. It is it is a huge affront to the animal that you've just killed, the animal that gave its life to sustain yours. You take just a little steak out of it and throw everything else away? No, that's not possible. Not at all. The best nutrition for us comes from these pieces, from that liquid that you drink and you make soup with, and from all those gelatinous parts that are on that bone, the bone marrow, the ligaments, the capsule of the joint, the skin, on the pork in particular. Pork skin is a medicine for immune system. Anybody who's afraid of any viruses, eat pork skin on a daily basis. Don't <laughs> any viruses. Well, I'll, yeah. tell, I'll tell you what, Natasha, you're speaking my language because we, we've really embraced, we've really embraced um, looking at uh, meat specifically differently, and we love it. Our kids are, you know, what watching their faces over the weekend as they get excited, mouth watering that we've just we've cooked a, a pork belly. And it's been roasting for a while, a nice crackling skin, or we're having a uh, ox cheek, uh, or we're having um, ox tail, and I can go on lamb shank and so forth. They love this, you know, the pates that you know. At the moment, we're we're buying pates versus versus making those, but they like those too. Talking about the eggs, they love eggs. You know, we don't really have much chicken anymore. We're mostly keeping it to kind of red meat, some salmon, loads of eggs, and then these kind of organ or sorry, these nose to tail cuts. They love it. They absolutely love it. And it's just so encouraging for me to know they love and they know, they innately know what's good for them when you allow them to eat it and enjoy it, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. And children need to be introduced to these foods from infancy. Then uh, you you don't need, they will not need any studies, any experts, any books to tell them what they should eat. Their body will know what they need, and it will lead them to the right pieces. Their sense of smell, the sight of it, the taste of it, just the whole feel of, of it, you know, they will know what's good for them. Yeah, and, and I think they truly do. I think they truly do. I think we've allowed ourselves to say that interest in said fatty cut or, you know, something with loads of butter or like a hollandaise sauce. Or we're, we're told to say that's indulgent. And that's bad. So keep it under check. And we've conflated that quote unquote yearning with the cravings of pasta, pizza, you know, sweets, ice cream. It, they're completely different things. The yearning for those for nourishment is a very different feeling internally to the cravings for another biscuit. And I just hope people can explore that. Because once they do, they realize hey, you can eat one meal a day like this, right? You can have one big meal and you can not eat until the next day because your body is just satisfied. It's got everything it needs. And um, however, I will say one one last thing. We can put a wrap, put a bow around this. We do eat plants here, so we have potatoes, we have uh, rice, we have uh, broccoli and broccoli cheese. Loads of cheese <laughs> around the broccoli cheese. Uh, we'll have a few other bits and pieces, but we've really calmed down our plant consumption, especially the processed, refined carbs. We have very little of that now i think we all feel great in our family um but as I've, as people listen into this now and okay they're saying okay so got to look after our gut flora got to not uh, get up ourselves into insulin resistance or reverse that insulin resistance eat lots uh, uh, prioritize animal-based nutrition including nose to tail organs and so forth but where what what, what portion of my plate should be plants what plants should i be eating 
And what is the role of those plants on my plate? Are they? Is it for nourishment, phytonutrients, and fibre, and all the things that we've been told are the reasons why you should be having plants? Or is it just for taste, experience, diversity? Like, what emphasis do you place on the plant portion of your plate? Every human being is unique. We all have different genetic background. We all have different metabolism. Um, women are cyclical creatures, so our needs for nutrition change uh, every, you know, on a monthly basis. And uh, children need different nutrition, and depending on the weather, depending on the season, on what we do, how stressed we are, we need different nutrition. So human beings need to get in touch with their inner body intelligence, because your intelligence is telling you all the time at every meal time what you should eat and what you should not. I've described this in great detail on my um, blog, which is called drnatasha.com, in an article called Feeding versus Cleansing. I've, I've explained it there, or one man's meat is another man's poison. I've explained this, there's a whole chapter on this in Vegetarianism Explained, in my book, Vegetarianism Explained. And there's a whole chapter on this in the forthcoming book, Gut and Physiology Syndrome, which is coming out next month gut and physiology syndrome. So it's quite a, a detailed thing. You cannot prescribe how much vegetables, how many meat should be on your plate, what the proportions should be, because these things change every day and change from meal to meal. And if you get back in touch with your inner body intelligence, what it needs, um, it conveys this information to you all the time. Then one morning, all you want for breakfast is an apple. You're happy. Next day you wake up, you need the works. You need three eggs and two sausages and the bacon, you know, and, and lots of fat on top of it. Because your the weather changed, your metabolism has changed, your activity has changed, and the needs of your body have changed. So you've enjoyed that particular meal. But then by lunchtime, again, your body has changed, everything's changed, and what was very pleasing for breakfast suddenly becomes repulsive at lunchtime, and you need something very different. So we all need to get back in touch. You, you cannot uh, take prescription from any book or any doctor or any nutritionist, what you should eat and in what proportions. You have to get in touch with your body. Your body is the expert. So to just try and make a finer point on that, though, you, you have said earlier that we as humans don't assimilate much value from plants and uh, you know our priority should be animal-based nutrition so is is this a, ma a matter of eating as few plants as necessary to fulfill certain some urges or is it for some phytonutrient or some medicinal value like what if you had to describe the value the purpose of plants in the human diet and therefore answering your earlier question which is innately understand what it is you need and what you want what is the want for it if you've described so little value of plant-based foods earlier in our discussion? Plants are cleansers. They do not feed us to any large degree. They cleanse the human body. They're cleansers. Some days we need more cleansing. Other days we need more feeding. Okay. Some people need more cleansing than feeding. Other people need more feeding than cleansing. And then there are people who need lots and lots of feeding and virtually no cleansing because their detox system is so efficient in the body that it cleanses uh, the body very nicely, as long as you keep feeding it very well. And it, it, it depends on our genetics, it depends on our uh, activity, it depends on many, many life parameters. Every human being is unique. That's why 
uh, one size doesn't fit all. Mm. You can't have one prescribed diet for everybody. That is why, as I said, if a person is very toxic and overweight and heavy, um, if they need to, to think what actually what, what their body uh, signals that the body gives them, and the body gives the signals to us through desire. Every time you want to eat and uh, ask yourself a question, what would I kill for right now? The answer will pop into your head instantly. As long as this is not the answer for an addict, I want pizza or I want chocolate <laughs> muffins, that's addiction. That is not the real answer. Well, the answer will pop into your head immediately. And that food will smell divine, taste fantastic, and you will feel satisfied after you've eaten it. That means you've served your body correctly. You've given your body the right set of nutrients for right now, what your body needs right now. So we all need to get in, back in touch with our um, our inner body intelligence. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge subject. I say I've described it in great detail on my blog in uh, an article called One Man's Meat is Another Man's Poison and in my books. Okay, right. We'll, we'll make sure we point to all of those and... Um... The, the last point I'll make is you said you visited India. We know many Indian cultures are vegetarian by default, both, you know, their lineage and their religion. And um, there is also rife diabetes in lots of Asian, South Asian cultures. So there's maybe some squaring away of that. You know, is, is that a diet that was born through necessity and traditional values? Or, or is, it, is it somehow a survival diet that they've been been able to make work with them with enough butter and you know yes, cheese and that, eggs. That, yes, that was a subject that interested me very much uh, when I went to India because there is so much propaganda in the Western world, misinformation about what what the diet of people in India is. All the people in India who live along waterways, sea, ocean, rivers, lakes, they have fish on their plate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and in between. And they consider that piece of fish on the plate to be the most important thing to eat first. They eat a lot of uh, fish, a lot of seafood. People who live away from waterways, they may become vegetarian traditionally out of poverty. Indian vegetarianism that exists in India comes from poverty. Because... Even if they have a goat in their back garden, or even if they've got some animal that they've spent months and months and months rearing, the amount of money that they will get by selling that animal will allow them to buy a lot of other food, you know, so they can't afford to eat that animal themselves, these people. So vegetarians in India traditionally are vegetarians out of poverty. They can't afford to eat meat. So when they get any chance to eat meat, they never say no to it. Right. Never. And they all, uh, whenever they have a chance to buy fish, and they all have chickens. And by the way, they don't feed them. You know, in India, it's interesting, they're chicken. So they would add eggs whenever they've got eggs. They would eat as many eggs as they can, possibly. And why do you think a cow is a sacred animal in India? Because it gives them an animal food that sustains the physical structure of their bodies. It gives them cheese, butter, cream, milk. You, you can't, uh, uh, you know, in India, any of you who travel there, it's, it's quite uh, fascinating. You know, this huge traffic, amount of, enormous amount of traffic in Delhi and other cities in India. And there's a herd of cows standing right in the middle of the road <laughs> with a fully endowed bull you know, right there, you know, and everybody carefully drives around them. 
nobody dares to touch them, nobody dares to disturb them or remove them or move them because it's a sacred animal in India. Because traditionally they knew they will die, perish without this milk and without the cream. So you couldn't kill the cow itself because if you kill the cow and eat it, then generations and, and then hundreds of other people around will perish because there will be no ghee. No yeah. butter, no cream. That, right? yeah. Exactly, exactly. So um, the, the Western-style veganism and vegetarianism arrived into India in the 1940s with the books of Nathan Pritikin. There was a, a, a New Yorker who wrote very successful books. I don't know why they were so successful. He sold millions of copies, Nathan Pritikin, who uh, promoted veganism, Western-style um, evangelical veganism. He himself died from three forms of leukemia at once. He suffered for 27 years from leukemia and eventually succumbed to it. And that is a typical fate of many vegans, long-term vegans. They either get a neurological illness or they get cancer or they get something else. They die from a degenerative disease usually because the body is completely depleted. It's unable to look after itself. And uh, so, so there is some proportion of Indians who follow that evangelical, religious, political um, veganism. But vast majority of vegetarians in India are vegetarians out of poverty, out of necessity. And uh, what they do, they, but you see, it's possible to be healthy in that environment, in that state, because they cook everything from scratch. Yeah. They grow their own vegetables. Uh, they ferment a lot of their food. They eat a lot of fermented foods. Fermentation predigests the plant matter, breaks it down and makes it more available for us to eat. Because remember, only uh, microbes can digest plants. So if you employ microbes to digest plants outside your body, before you consume those plants, you're digesting them. And then you eat them in that pre-digested state. So Indians eat a lot of fermented foods, particularly vegetarians in India. And that's, uh, it is possible to be a healthy vegetarian as long as you cook everything from scratch, you do not consume any processed foods of any description, you do not buy anything in supermarkets, you grow everything yourself, and you ferment a lot. And you must eat some animal products, such as eggs, dairy, fish, maybe occasionally meat. Mm. Great, great, great closing advice. This has been fascinating, Natasha. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and with your heart and um, giving us some some practical guidance as well as the science and as well as the just kind of the intu intuitive aspect of food that I think um, it would serve us all to just get back in touch with that intuition. You've mentioned your books that I will link within the show notes, uh, as well as your website, your blog. Is there any other uh, social media channels or any other parts of your business you want people to know about before we close the call? I train practitioners and I train other people in the GAPS nutritional protocol. There is a, uh, the, the training is online now. Uh, it's a three months course. Go to gapstraining.com. If you're a, a health practitioner and you would like to get trained how to implement the GAPS nutritional protocol, if you're not a practitioner, we train GAPS coaches. These are people like doctors and nurses. So these are more, more hands-on people who come into the home of the patient and help them to shop and help them to cook and help them to deal with individual issues. So we train GAPS coaches as well. I have a website called gaps.me, M-E. That is my official um, GAPS website. And, uh, and the blog that I have already mentioned. And in conclusion, I would like to say that 
human body is a miraculous creation. It is the pinnacle of evolution on the uh, on our beautiful planet. It has all the mechanisms of healing itself, propagating itself, and keeping itself in a healthy, beautiful state, programmed into it. It's your own body that heals you. Not the doctor, not the pill, not the diet, not anything else. Your own body does that work. And it's infinitely wiser than any scientist, any book, any, any doctor, anybody in the world. Because the wisdom that is programmed into your body has been designed over billions of years. Our scientists tinkered in their laboratories for a few decades. What do they know? <laughs> Compared to billions of years of wisdom so that good. is programmed in your body. Get back in touch with nature. Get back in touch with your body. And you will not go wrong. Beautiful closing advice. Brilliant, brilliant. And thank you for having such a wholesome conversation with us. I wish you all the best for the rest of the year with your new book. Hope you can maintain your sunny disposition throughout uh, what is going to be a bumpy another six months because we know it will be. Uh, and let's hope uh, let's hope we all wake up and call bullshit, quite frankly, on this propaganda <laughs> misinformation, whether it be about the food we eat, about medicine, or about this coronavirus nonsense. Thank you so much for your time, Natasha. Keep well. Hope your family keep well. And let's keep in touch. And thank you for your work, Steve. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.